I'm Kim Vudin. Welcome to Milo's Music Parlor, a live music speakeasy and podcast show brought to you by Milo Records New Orleans and itsneworleans.com. Every week we bring to you in our live audience a taste of the musicians who shape the New Orleans music landscape. From the living legends to the young upstarts to those burgeoning national and international acts making the extra effort to stop here in New Orleans, all of whom are performing live music to enjoy the rich musical history of the city that continues to inspire and influence musicians everywhere. Milo's Music Parlor is a member of the family of shows on the podcast network, itsneworleans.com. We're coming to you live from Tassology, an art and music cafe here on O.C. Haley Boulevard in the heart of Central City in New Orleans. Today we're joined by Alex McMurray. For New Jersey native Alex McMurray, it was not love at first sight when he moved to New Orleans 28 years ago. But like many of us, he learned to love it and found himself returning from New York after Katrina, even after realizing you have to be crazy to live in this town, an idea that became the title of one of his post-Katrina songs. His music can be described as lyrical and imaginative, what you might hear if Elvis Costello and Randy Newman had a kid, but with distinct New Orleans flair and songwriting edge of his very own. An amazing multitasker as a member of the Tin Men, the Valparaiso's Men's Chorus, and the Happy Talk Band, Alex McMurray also has become one of New Orleans' most distinguished singer-songwriters while keeping a sense of humor with a wide repertoire of traditional and original sea shanties. John Swenson of Stereophile Magazine writes, Alex McMurray covers as wide a stylistic range as any contemporary writer, matching cleverly turned lyrics and story songs with durable melodies and structural vision that leads to many of his songs having a surprise musical twist that match the word's intricacy. Hi, Alex. Thanks for coming. Hi, Kim. Great to be here. That was a great set. <laughs> that was a varied set. You go from one end of the spectrum to the other. You know, uh, I like to change it, it up. up. Yeah, mix it up. Um, I did find it interesting. You're one of the few musicians I've ever heard in this town who actually admits that you didn't like this place at first. And so I have two questions: What did you dislike about New Orleans? And after you finished Tulane and the financial aid that went along with uh, it, what kept you here? Um, when I, I. She's referring to my uh, college career. I came here to go to Tulane. And uh, I was, I applied to a lot of colleges, like a lot of people do. And uh, I got into most of them, but the ones that I wanted to go to didn't give me any financial aid. And the only school that gave me financial aid was Tulane. So basically I went to Tulane for like, well, it cost me to buy my books and, uh, and for the meal plan. <laughs> it was cheaper for me to go to Tulane than to go to uh, Rutgers. And well, the food was better. And the I think the plan? food's better at Rutgers. I, I, I'm sorry. <laughs> I've never been, but it's got to be. Uh, the food at, the, at Bruff Commons, I don't know if you've heard of it. It's probably a, a Bruff blog. You know, that's where the, you have to go when you're a freshman, you know, that cafeteria kind of vibe. I feel like they're going to take your name off that building right, <laughs> right as this airs. I'll, I'll hand them the chisel. You know, they can do it. <laughs> they, uh, 
Tulane and I, you know, we didn't have a, a great relationship from the start. Um, but, uh, and so I tried to transfer out of Tulane. I, I didn't like Tulane. I didn't like the school. I, 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 was a, I was a snobbish little kid who thought he was really smart and I was going to be an academic and I was going to be, you know, the bee's knees and all this. And, uh, you know, I was just full of shit. And um, <laughs> We can say that on a podcast. Yeah, I know. I know. I'm hip. <laughs> Um, full of shit, shit, shit. <laughs> um, but uh, there goes my so, Christian sponsorship oh, for well, this. Well, it's you know, Jeez. just I'm the just just I'm the bad guy. <laughs> <coughs> um, the uh, so so I was trying to transfer out of Tulane all my freshman year, and uh, <laughs> and I, the, the school that I was wanted to go to like actually waitlisted me again, and I was like. Oh, like, please, don't just, don't, don't, either take me or don't take me. Don't waitlist me because that's all the money's <laughs> gone after they waitlist you. They let you in, but like, then you got to pay the whole thing. And I was, you know, that was, so they waitlisted me a second time. And that was like, it was pretty much like I took it as a sign from the Almighty, the Creator. You mean Tulane? Tulane, yeah. <laughs> that uh, I would, I was kind of stuck here. And then, um, but, but not too long after that, um, because I had always played guitar when I was growing up, but you know, in New Jersey, that's not you can't do that for a living. You have to have big you, hair, maybe. You, you, you're, you're, you're either in a wedding band or you're John Bon Jovi. Right. There's no oh, middle ground. <laughs> well, the boss wasn't even living there then. He was living in Los Angeles with that crazy lady. But <laughs> so it was like the field was wide open, like, but there's nothing, you know, I don't know. So, uh, but, uh, so I started getting into bands, you know, college friends were starting bands. And uh, so I started playing places like uh, Cafe Brazil had just opened. And this is back in the 80s, late 80s, very heady time. Um, a place called Muddy Waters was a big, uh, a big spot. Uh, we played there on Tuesdays. We played a lot of places like on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday night. And we figured, because since like George Porter would play on Saturday night or Walter Washington would play on Saturday night, if you just kept on moving up the ranks, like one day you'd play Thursday. And then like, you know, one day you'd be like the Friday band and then you would have made it. And so I'm still Mr. Tuesday night. <laughs> It's a solid Tuesday, though. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm like at Yuki's on Tuesday night. So you're staying in New Orleans to get to Saturday. Yeah, I just still try to get to Saturday night. Uh, but what did you not like about the city? Uh, I guess you just you hate what you don't understand, you know. Um, I, I, you know, I mean, I was, I was uptown. I was living in a dormitory. I didn't. I had no knowledge of the. the there was a culture here. I didn't really know anything about it. I wasn't interested in it. I didn't apply to Tulane because I was interested in, in the culture. I, was in, I applied to Tulane because it was a school I could get into. And, just, and my cousin had applied. This entire podcast, it's a ringing endorsement. Yeah, I mean, listen, I was, just, I was just like, my cousin had applied there. It looked like I could get in. So I just applied. It was like, I guess it was like one of those, like I didn't have to write another essay or something. It was like there was, the, the application was $20. These are the things that'll, you know, your life will ch- turn it's because 
because you want to save $15 on a college application. So I didn't know, I didn't like freshman year, I didn't know there was a jazz fest. I wasn't even that interested in music at all. I mean, I could play, I could operate the guitar, and I could sing and whatever, and I'd even kind of started writing a couple songs, but I was not interested in, there's no, music was never an option in my world as a career or as a life. I mean, that's a pretty severe turn from not being that interested into music and then becoming a professional musician. Well, here's what happened. I was in a band and we played at a place called the Warehouse Cafe and they gave me $30 and all the beer I could drink. Done. That was it. Done. Retirement plan was right there. Yeah, I barely made it out of school. Um, graduated though, four years flat. And uh, was just, I've been doing music ever since. That's, that's a very inspiring story. $30 <laughs> and all the beer you can drink. Your journey to professional, <laughs> to being was, a professional musician. Well, I was like 19, 20. Your, your genre is not a pigeonhole type of thing. You clearly have a lot of different influences, uh, but you did grow up in New Jersey. So when was it that you started listening to the musicians who inspired the type of music you're playing today? Um, well, I was a two, in my two-lane band. We were trying to get people to dance, you know. It was called the Vince Berman Trio, and we were trying to emulate, like, the Meters and the Neville Brothers and Radiators or whatever. Little Feet, actually, too, and trying to get, you know, play the funky grooves and get people to dance, and it's a fraternity party and whatever, and big jams, guitar solos, and, you know. Girls like guitar solos girls, and... and I, I guess they do. I don't know. It, during <laughs> that funk. era, it was like saxophone solos. You'd always had to have a saxophone player or something, you know. And, uh, you know, uh, people would be, you know, everybody would be drinking VAT. You remember VAT? No. VAT is, like, you get a big garbage can and you fill it with, like, all sorts of fruit juice and stuff and, like, all the K&B vodka and gin and whatever kind of crappy booze you could. And, like, and then you just so throw enticing. some dry ice in it for, 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 for flavor. And then people would drink this and Everclear. And so people would drink this vat, and they just, you know, they have three glasses of this, and they'd, they're like 19 years old, and they'd fall on their faces. And, and that now, was the audience, you know. It's an you easy can audience. Now you just do that on Frenchmen, yeah, but with well, nicer they, liquor. Well, not, yeah, not, not as fast as this. <laughs> uh, so we were trying to get people to dance, and, you know, they were so full of vat that they wouldn't dance. But we weren't very, <laughs> I couldn't get people to dance. I wasn't very good at, I was trying to write funky songs, and then... One day, after, after I'd been out of school for about a year and I was trying to book this band, like a, a mutation of the college band into places like in Hattiesburg and Tuscaloosa and, you know, Baton Rouge and like not getting, not having much luck, I just decided that I was not good at getting people to dance. So uh, I was listening to a lot of country music then, Willie Nelson, uh, George Jones, uh, a lot of like Neil Young, um, Tom Waits came into the picture then, and you know I'd always I'd always loved like you know Leon Redbone from when I was a kid. I want to be seduced. Want a woman to take me out to dinner for two. Like to see her eyes get moody. Flirting with the thought of what flirting ought to do Like to be real cool 
better think about getting rid of me in bed. Here's a chat about Magna Carta. And so I was like, forget this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to have a band where I'm going to be sitting down. And everybody's like, we're going to be, I want to play in a place where there is no dance floor, where everybody's sitting in chairs. And listening to me. And listening to me, yeah. <laughs> and there would be like banquettes and, you know, a, a cigarette girl or something, you know. <laughs> a classy joint. There you go. You know. Here you are in O.C. Haley. You, right. And finally, you made it. Finally made it. On Mr. a Tuesday. Mr. Tuesday night. <laughs> Got a 16-year residency. <laughs> uh, I see you have other influences, though, as well. The sea shanty thing <coughs> and also um, Ernest Wranglin. You, uh, sure. Yeah. I mean, because, uh, you know, I played a lot of Jamaican music with his band, 007. We did a, a whole rock steady thing. I, I like how you're like, oh, sure, everyone, everyone plays yeah. Jamaican well, music. Well, it's right. Well, Jamaican music is big. Uh, there's a big connection between Jamaican, Jamaican and New Orleans, you know. Uh, for, I don't know. Oh, well, anyway, it's true. Um, but, what, you know, uh, okay, it? say in, say, let's go now to the 1950s where AM signals would come out of New Orleans, and they would go bounce across the ocean, and on a clear night, they would bounce in just the right way, and they would get to Jamaica, and they would be hearing Fats Domino in Jamaica, and, it, and since the signal was so weird, it sounded like reggae, and that's why <laughs> reggae sounds, it sound like, actually sounded like ska. That's why that, it's, it's true. Ska comes from the ninth word. John Cleary said it. You can look it up. He said it on. Uh, You're in his Tompkins. You are. Uh, you no. are an academic. As I'm just you telling you what I heard on the radio. Okay. But it's true. I mean, like, it's they. Jamaican music uh, is is greatly influenced by uh, uh, New Orleans stuff and the, the Scatolites and stuff like that. They they took because they, they they couldn't get the the, the the all they'd hear is like the the top end. Huh. And it sounded like chicken, 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 chicken. <laughs> I'm not kidding. And so I was in a band for many years uh, with a guy named Jeffrey Clemens and a guy named Joe Cabral and a guy named Jonathan Freilich called 007. We played Rocksteady, which is the style approximately between uh, ska and reggae. It's kind of like the 60s, like Desmond Decker and um, mm-hmm. uh, Twits and Maytals and stuff like that. And the, the Jamaicans and Paragons and like there was all these... Do you still do any of the stuff today with any of the million projects you're involved with? Uh, yeah, stuff? sometimes we do the rock steady stuff. Me and Joe still play. But people dance to that. People so, do dance to so that. So then, then your whole theory. Of well, no, it was, it was like it was all happened accidentally. Okay. Not accidentally. Because, accidentally. I mean, danced. I was like, the, I was just sitting there playing the guitar, and, and people started dancing. It wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't, it wasn't a calculated. Uh, the, it was strategy. the drummers. The drummer started the band. He wanted to have this band, and and we started playing and immediately people started dancing and I was like wow finally all I had to do was play Jamaican music and it would have worked even back then this whole time this whole time this whole, who knew 70s Jamaican music Jeffrey knew he did he apparently. did and uh, it was a great band and we were very successful Dude, the root 
eventually kind of steered towards getting people songs to get people to drink with this sea shanty thing what what's up with that talk to me that, about uh, japan yeah yeah uh, what happened is uh, i got a friend who's a talent bar he was he's the manager of the soul rebels now his name is adam, adam shipley. shipley yeah and he uh he's from florida and he uh has a friend had a friend who worked at disney and who would call him every six months or so and say, hey, I need a juggler. Or, hey, I need a guy who can you know, like balance the plates on the sticks. Or a guy who can, you know, yodel. Do you got any yodelers? And, and you were and usually Adam, his go-to. No, no, no. I was never the go-to. He would say to, he would recommend somebody to this guy at Disney. And one time the guy at Disney called him and, sa- and said, hey, I need a guy who can sing, play guitar and or banjo and do sea shanties. And so Adam called a mutual friend, this friend who I was talking to you about, Glenn Hartman, the accordion player, uh-huh. and said, Glenn, do you know anybody who can uh, sing and play guitar and you know, do folk music for, and do sea shanties at Disney? And he ju- himself was already in the no, New Orleans Klezmer Glenn, All-Stars? Yeah, 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 yeah. This is probably, this is like, uh, around 2001, 2002. And Glenn said, well, what about Alex? And Adam said, well, it's Disney. <laughs> and Glenn said, no, really, you should call Alex. He could do it. He's like, well, you know, it's Disney. They're pretty straight-laced over there. And Glenn said, yeah, I've been telling you. He could do the gig. And you know, so Adam called me and said, uh, would you be interested? And I said, you know, it was right after 9-11. It was a great time to get out of the country, you know. So uh, it didn't, the contract, I, I said, sure. I said, yes. And I did a video audition and... They didn't hire me. And then six months, then I started doing all this stuff, like the first 10 men record, my first solo record. And then all this stuff was going on. And then Adam calls me four months later. He's like, Alex, Alex, they need a guy to do the sea shanty band or do the sea shanty gig. Can you do it? I said, well, uh, can I have a couple minutes to think about it? So you got 48 hours. And the contract started after Jazz Fest. So I said, sure. And so I went to Japan and sang sea shanties for Japanese tourists for six, six months. And, and so I had... What was the reaction? What was, what, what was the... This is the reaction. Oh, sagoine! <laughs> Translation? Means, uh, sagoine means amazing. <laughs> amazing. I'm always amazing. You were Saturday night every was, day was, in Japan. Yeah, I was. Yeah, I was like a eye patch. Did you do the, the no? Whole it wasn't. Thing, a, it, it was not a pirate costume. It was <laughs> like a 19th century sea captain, like Ahab or, or Captain Crunch. Sorry, you know? sorry, I totally mischaracterized. No, that. everybody. You know, everybody gets the idea that it's just, it was a pirate band. Oh, when you did the pirate gig, I'm like, no, no, it's no. so different. Captain Crunch. Well, is so vastly much more respectable. I beg to differ. You know, there's like the Johnny, there's like, you know, like that, whatever that. You were Johnny Depp. 
No, that, that was that not was the you? Johnny. No. <laughs> no, 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 you know the whole pirate uh, thing that you know with the, the poofy shirt and the oh no poofy patch shirt, the, no poofy shirt. No, no, it's like a guy in a pea coat with like you know Wellington boots and a hat with gold braid, little cap with a brim. He's very and, distinguished. Uh, a string tie. Yeah, I mean, looked like a like almost like a riverboat captain, kind of like really 19th century kind of square. And like checked pants, wool pants, with the you know, and like it was middle. It was summertime, so it was hot as hell. And uh, you walk around. I was a solo act, uh, what they call atmosphere. <laughs> and I would do six 20-minute sets, walking around, singing sea shanties. In English. In English. Not in Japanese. We had to learn one song in Japanese. Hit it! Come on. Um, do we want this song in Japanese? I don't know if everyone? I can remember it, but it was, it was it was called Umi, and it's it's a song that every Japanese person knows. It's a Umi wa hiroi na ooki na tsuki ga yomorushi. There's another line, but I forget it. It was a long time ago. You'd think that I would know it because I did. I sang it about fifty thousand times. <laughs> Busted out at Yuki. No, I don't remember it. I should look it up. Come on, it's like your natural audience. I know. I it's. I've been busy. <laughs> I've been busy with other things and getting the getting you my. You want to relive the Disney years? I months. Should, I mean, things that it would, like it would be a lot of research, and then I'd like to be able to do it once and. I mean, the <laughs> but you, research to payoff ratio is not great. It was, <laughs> I disagree. You're probably right. It wasn't. Uh, like a fleeting moment in your life. You released a whole album of these two seasons. records. Okay. Two records. So we. Uh, so I had this six-month gig, and then they sent me back home. And uh, a friend of mine, Henry Griffin, was making a movie about this. He was so fascinated with this Japanese job that I had. He started making a movie of like of interviews with me and some other people. And we decided to make to have a night at the Mermaid Lounge, which used to be near here. And, uh, and we would get a bunch of guys together and we would sing the, the songs the way they're supposed to be because there's big work songs, like with like big gang of guys. And, and we had a band and everything and it was, it was like they were just about to close and it was a bar and a recording studio so we drank up all the booze and, and we just had a great time. And, and they recorded it and, and then Katrina happened and then like, you know, a few years later we finally got the, the tapes together and uh, made put this record, you know, transferred it to digital, and put out the record, and, and then we had a record release party, and so we got all the same guys together, and it was fun. So we decided we'd just start doing more shows. So that's kind of morphed into this band now, the Valparaiso Men's Chorus. Okay. And do you guys perform regularly in town, or very irregularly actually, but uh, a couple times a year, 
few times a year. We usually, like usually like once in the fall, once in the spring maybe, and once at Chaz Fest. Like before you set sail. Uh, you know, a lot of the guys don't have their shots, you know, so they can't get on board a lot of the... It's cumbersome. Yeah, how, how are you going to It's tough. Sing it's tough, and I can't... On your way to Malaysia without the yellow fever shot. Yeah, we, it's tough. It's tough to get these guys uh, aboard, as they say. Twas Underway. I would the parlance. Uh, you've had other lives, other jobs. It sounds like you graduated Tulane with a, a degree in English and philosophy and began a lucrative career digging ditches in Bay St. Louis. That was my, my first, I worked up to that. My first job was washing dishes at the Billabong Bakery on Calhoun Street. That was what I did when I got out of school. And uh, when that fell through, I went to uh, Damn. substitute teaching in the New Orleans Public Schools, which was a step in the wrong direction, uh, giving guitar lessons. Uh, where else did I work? Um, and then I, yeah, then I, th my next job was digging ditches in Bay St. Louis underneath a house. It was like a big, like one of these... Uh, a plantation house, like a, that kind of a, you know, rich person's house, old, right on the bay. It's gone now. But uh, they wanted, they needed to, to clear away from the foundation, like six feet or eight feet. Like a uh, moat. To on the inside, to so they need, could treat it for the deterioration that was going on. Uh -huh. So me and and you remember JD and the Jammers? No. No. Well, anyway, me and JD were the guys digging the hole and, and one of the jammers, Dave Renson, was the foreman. And so I lived out there with those guys or I'd drive out, stay a few days. The idea of musicians doing labor makes me yeah, nervous. Yeah, but it's like, you'd be in a crawl space like this big and you gotta start the hole. So you'd start it with like a little hand tool, <laughs> right? And then you'd kinda put the dirt into the five gallon bucket and hand it to the guy behind it. He'd go up through a hole in the floor and put it in a, in a, a wheelbarrow and then he'd come back down and get the next bucket. And so you do, until there's enough room for you to stand, so you and then you get this shovel, and you start, then you switch off, you know, and then you, you dig this trench. It was like it was like tunneling out. It was great, but tunneling out with JD and the Jammers. Did you guys have? Did you sing while you're doing this? Did you jam? We what did not you? jam. We did. We smoked a lot of cigarettes. Just cigarettes. Um, well, it was it was six bucks an hour from six a.m. to six p.m. Six six six. It was easy Whoa. to remember, <laughs> but those were you know like nineteen ninety four dollars. You know, so they were much. You're wealthy. Yeah, we were, uh, we were happy to get them. JD did the cooking. You had a camp. We had. We lived in like the the, the, the like whatever the helps quarters or whatever you call it, like the the, the outbuilding. And uh, I commuted like I'd go. I'd drive out there for a few days and drive back. And, should have seen us in 97, the biggest springtime under it. Everything we touched turned to gold. We were young, we was dumb and shit. Couldn't tell what to do with it. Back 
get back to your musical career it sounds like that was memorable <laughs> me too but, um, I, I also wanted to let the audience ask some questions there's a anything's there's a on mic. the table if, if you can come up to the mic that would be greatly appreciated for our podcast listener so I'm just curious about uh, Chaz Fest you mentioned I spent am I on am I good there you go um, I, about seven years ago I, I went to one of the first couple and had a incredible time uh-huh. and I think there was a little hiatus there but just the genesis of that what's the the story behind it Chaz Fest uh, uh, yeah. Chaz Chaz yeah. right well here's I'll tell you what happened was um, in 2006 after the storm um, they had reduced the number of acts you know that they were going to hire they, they cut out one of the days the Thursday was gone hmm. which people sometimes call the locals day so there's a lot of bands, like all the bands that I was in did not get hired. And Washboard Chaz, I'm in a band with Washboard Chaz. And so we were sitting around the yard, Chaz and myself and our wives, and I think Chaz's son, Josh, and I think our friend, Daniel, but I I'm not, can't be sure, in an afternoon. And we're just, you know, of course, every spring, everybody bitches about the Jazz Fest. It's kind of like a ritual. So we were bitching that day about Jazz Fest and talking about how you know, all the bands we play with, you know, none of them got picked to play at Jazz Fest. And so we said, well, listen, we should just go play across the street from Jazz Fest. We'll set up at that bar on, the, you know, around show Gentil- them. on Gentilly, you know, Boulevard. And, you know, oh, yeah, we'll show them. And we said, well, wait, screw that. Why don't we do, that, do it here in this nice yard where I was living, where we were living at the time, uh, called the Truck Farm. There used to be a recording studio there. And so we said, yeah, yeah, we'll start our own festival. Yeah, yeah, we're going for drinking, you know. <laughs> and uh, so, so we decided, yeah, we did it, you know. So we, so we started, and we, you know, just, we didn't know, we didn't know that you needed, like, permits or anything, you know. Well, but you kind of don't. I mean. Not then. <laughs> I remember you gave iron-ons. I have an iron-on, an, oh, yeah. iron-ons. Yeah. Like, uh, t-shirts. Yeah. I remember, uh, yeah. And it was great. You still have the uh, shirts, or you still just have the iron-on? Okay, don't wear that shirt. It's amazing. It's like, it's this like toxic thing. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's like only toxic to wet. humans. The shirt will be fine. Uh, so is it, it, it went away for a couple of years, It went away for right? a year while my wife and I had a child. Oh. My wife and I run it. Oh. So, uh, yeah, so we, we, we had a kid and we moved from the truck farm to another place. So we weren't even there. We're still not living there. We put it on again this year. I mean, I've sworn up and down that we won't do it every year since we've started it. So I'm not going to make any pre- threats or promises. I, but, you know, I mean, I guess... You can, you can swear on here. You can, you can monitor the website and we'll see. But, you know, if it, was, if it was up to me, then we would not do it again, you know. 
Well, you can't, it can't get any bigger because there's fences. And we can't, like, move into the parking lot, you know, because there is no parking lot. The truck farm. Yeah, it was a... That's a long story, but it was a recording studio. And it's like four properties that are all owned by a bunch of people. And uh, at one time, there was a recording studio. There They're all people in the studio business back when there was in the, a record business, a record industry. And there were, uh, there's a studio called Kingsway Studio. And this, this fellow named Dan Lanois ran it, and it was a big deal. And all the people that worked there were like, oh, this, what, look at all this money. We should take all this money, and we should buy property and start our own studio. And they, just their timing was terrible because, in fact, the music industry was was obsolete, you know. And so uh, I, sh I feel like, I, Ben, you should be, you know. Oh, no. Come on, man. Yeah, it's pretty much. <laughs> anyway, so uh, that's the, the, so, but now it's still, it's uh, four, four properties that share a key lot, and it's uh, the space where we do Chaz Fest. We lived, my wife and I lived there for uh, 2006 to last year, however long that is. No math anymore. <laughs> Eight years. Eight years. So, uh, yeah, that was how Jazz Fest started. And how Jazz Fest continues, but not really. I'm sorry? How Jazz Fest continues. How it continues, who knows? You know, maybe there'll be uh, a Guggenheim or something will show up. And we'll <laughs> well, there you go. Other questions? I gotta say, when the first time I visited New Orleans, I hated it as well. It took me ten years when I came yeah. back, and then it all came good. This is scuzzy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Things <laughs> don't work either. Things don't work. But the beer was cheap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but when I came back, uh, it was fifteen some years ago. One of the places I went to a lot was Carrollton Station. There's a lot of great singer-songwriter stuff that went on back then, and a bunch of those people are now in a group with you, the Wright Brothers. Yeah. This uh, super group, you could call it. I don't know if that's what you call it. but um, And it's some of my favorite uh, performers in that. Um, and I was wondering how that group got together. And I don't, I have not listened to the music yet. So I'm wondering if it's music that you guys write together yeah, as a group. Or if it's songs that you do of each other. Or is it like it's both Engelbert Humperdinck you know, covers? I don't know. We don't do any Engelbert. The Tin Men do Engelbert. Oh, really? Yeah, um, but the Wright brothers uh, was it was Jim McCormick's idea originally. He was going to do a record with uh, Threadhead Records, and he thought, why not get like you know four New Orleans songwriters together and actually uh, I, and, and do each other's songs and make a record that way. But then it was decided that it would be cooler to to try to write together, so we would actually sat down, would sit down, the four of us, and bang out tunes, you know. So on that record, I think there's, I don't know, uh, six or eight tunes that we all wrote together. And then everybody did one song of each other's. Like I did one of Jim's tunes, and Jim did one of Spencer's, and Spencer did one of Paul's, and Paul did one of mine. So uh, we recorded the record Ooh, when was it? Last year. And uh, came out I, somewhere, t I think around January. 
and we worked a bunch this spring, and uh, Spencer's on the road a lot. So I think we'll, we've got another date to write in August, like August 26th at 3 p.m. Something like that. We're going to get together and the magic will happen. And uh, since you guys are all, you know, independently wealthy and busy, um, do you guys plan to tour on that or do... I, s I see you play around every now and again, we've, but... We've played some shows. I mean, we've, we, our first gig actually was in Pensacola. That's going on the road. Yeah. I mean, and we also played in, uh, on the other side of Mobile. We're going to go to Baton Rouge. <laughs> wow. Road Warriors. You are. <laughs> um, Jim just had a third child. Uh, I, I've got a 15-month-old. You know, Spencer's always on the road. Uh, and Paul, you know, who knows? I mean, that's kind of, it would be a hard band to, to tour with. But I think anybody's, you know, willing to do whatever. I mean, if the money was right, I mean, that's pretty much the thing. Can I say that on podcast? No. If... <laughs> You know, if it was, if it was cool enough, and it was, you know, the, the opportunity was, yeah. If you're gonna do it, do it too many times. If you're gonna do it, do it till you're losing your mind. I don't care if it's thinking or drinking, women or to go blind Go on, save a little for the middle of the night How was it that you uh, ended up getting signed to TVT Records back in the day with uh, Royal Finger Bowl? It's uh, a good question. Um, the earth opened up and the devil came. <laughs> From who's hot magma, and then it took the shape of a guy named Steve Gottlieb. Um, <laughs> Another ringing endorsement <laughs> on the air from Alex McMurray. Well, he actually, you know, he has a great song written about him uh, by a guy named Trent Reznor called "Head Like a Hole." <laughs> um, he was on that label too. Um, Steve. Really was somewhat <laughs> well, I, you know. He was awesome. He was, he was not awesome, but... But how did he discover you? Really Scott Ages had a, our, our tape back in the 90s. Was he managing you? No, Scott? he wasn't. Okay. Royal Finger Bowl. I had this band called Royal Finger Bowl, and uh, we got together around 95, 94, 95, something like that. And we made a, a demo tape. We made it at The Mermaid to have something to sell at shows, 12 songs on a cassette, because people would buy the cassette. And they really did. And you would sell it. People would say, oh, yes, how much for your, your cassette? And they'd say, you know, $12 or $10. And they'd say, okay, I'll buy one. I'll take it. You know, you have change for a $17 it, it would bill. Have, it would have been hard to imagine the transaction without It's amazing. Play by play. And you'd, every a couple months, you go out to Stoney's studio out in Kenner, you know, and get, hey, you'd, like, duplicate them for you. <laughs> you remember Stoney's? 
Okay, we'll talk about it later. Anyway, so uh, we had this cassette that we were selling at gigs, and it was, I guess, kind of like a demo as well. It was like our record. You know, we made it for, you know, $1,100 or something, you know. And uh, Scott Ages, who at one time had written for the Times-Picayune, he was uh, the music writer. He runs Jazz Fest now. He runs, well, he runs the Jazz Fest Foundation wing. Okay. It's like Jazz Fest is like two different sides. There's the, the, the festival, which makes the money. Scott Ages spends the money. So, Best job in the world. It's a great job. He's a happy guy. Every time I run into him, he's in a great mood. But he uh, was managing the Continental Drifters, I think, at the time. And he was out of the newspaper. He was managing bands. And he had our tape. And he passed it along to a guy named Rob Seidenberg from Hollywood Records, who, you know, he heard it and he liked it. And then he was calling me. And then this guy named James Lean wrote an article in CMJ magazine. And I think that he mentioned that Hollywood was interested. Anyway, this guy Gottlieb got wind of this. I guess he, was, he liked what he saw. He actually got into a bidding war with this guy, Seidenberg. And like idiots, we were like, New York is so much cooler, because where the label was, is so much cooler than Hollywood. Let's sign with the New York label. <laughs> A lot and of the heavy rest decision is decision making. Yeah. <laughs> Weighed factors. No, New York I mean, is it was, cooler. I don't know. It was like it was all. It was. It seemed like it was. They pretty much were both crappy labels, you know. But uh, we kind of went with our effective. went with our heart rather than our head. I don't know. I, I, I mean, I, I can't. I, if we went with Hollywood Records, Seidenberg was a much nicer guy. He wasn't the the CEO or anything. He was. The, he would be the A and R guy. I think we probably would have had a better time there, but that's all, you know, retrospect. So that's how it happened. Seidenberg. Sure. Uh, okay, so uh, I had a question about uh, your guitar playing. It's, you do a lot of, like, finger-picking, kind of reminds me of Mississippi John Hurt stuff. Who, who have you, like, listened to or transcribed or anything that kind of brought you into Mississippi that? Mississippi John Hurt. Yeah, that's what I was guessing. <laughs> okay. Um, that for him, actually, yeah, he's a big, big, big influence. Mm -hmm. um, him, like I said, Leon Redbone earlier. Um, I mean, I can't do Blind Blake. No, that's just too hard. Uh, not many people can. <laughs> um, Gary Davis uh, is also. I mean, like I can kind of approximate it. Not even, yeah. not really close, but like something like that. Mm -hmm. Dave Van Ronk, <laughs> who knew all that stuff, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, That's yeah. Those are that's all my guys, you know, and Elizabeth Cotton. Oh yeah, yeah. You know, um, uh, Bill Brunzi, uh Lonnie Johnson. Uh, you know, and I like guys like Neil Young too. You know, like yeah. strummers and Mark Knopfler. I liked a lot when I was growing up. And uh, I guess to follow that question, like what. What kind of turned you on to that kind of style of playing, like, to, or to, to say, for example, Mississippi John Hurt, or where'd you first hear those kind of players? Basically, because I was hanging around with this friend of mine, Jonathan Freilich, who knows that whole bag, you know, and he, okay. he and I were starting to play together a little bit, and, um, 
and he he just was he was like doing the Stefan Grossman like transcriptions of uh, Gary Davis and I never knew how to finger pick finger picking is a pretty like basic thing on the guitar like you know but I didn't know how to do it I mean it's a specific technique and I I I was always mystified at how people could have two things going on at once or three things mm-hmm. and so I actually sent away for videos and like you know DVDs a guy named Happy Traum has a company called Homespun and I would order his videos like you know intro to finger picking <laughs> I would sit down and he's like they'd, they'd be like and him and John Sebastian would be like okay now we're going to you know do this Mississippi John Hurt song you know and yeah. uh, and so they kind of tell you what the canon is and, and like from there you can go get the records and and uh, that's how it happened. It's been a yeah the summer pretty much like just getting into that stuff. Um, I do want to ask about your future plans. It sounds like the Tin Men and you are you, all of y'all are going to Escona. Do you have anything else that you want to share? Uh, I'll be at, in Escona with the Tin Men and then uh, with Debbie Davis for the second half of the festival, and then uh, going to uh, Montana and Colorado in August with the Tin Men and. Uh, not too much else. I mean, I'm, we're going to Maine. We we'll play like one show in Maine in July, but otherwise we can catch you here on Tuesdays. Not every Tuesday. <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> but pretty much every Wednesday at DBA with the Tin Men or a Reasonable Facsimile. But we'll be <laughs> taking off August for Europe. Well, that just the month. They just won't, they won't be open on Wednesdays, or they, there won't be music on Wednesdays at DBA. They they take their vacation, and it's very slow. They usually we just don't appear. Did not realize that. Yeah, it's real slow. Well, do you want any to share any websites or anything else with the with the with your listening audience? AlexMcMurray.com. Sounds good. That's really it's all there. <laughs> Thanks so much, for, so much for coming on Miles Music Parlor. No problem. Thanks. And, for having me. And thank you to listening to for listening to Milo's Music Parlor. Thanks so much for joining us at home, at work, on your phone, wherever you are, and whatever you're doing. This has been a production of It's New Orleans and Milo Records New Orleans and sponsored by WTUL. And a very special thanks today to Alex McMurray. Thanks, Kim. <laughs>
You can follow us on Twitter at It's New Orleans. You can like us on Facebook. We're at It's New Orleans. And you can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and Stitcher. You can listen to our other Milo Music Parlor shows on our website, itsneworleans.com, as well as our other shows, Happy Hour, Out to Lunch, Mindset, True to the Game, Midnight Menu Plus One, and Louisiana Eats. Milo's Music Parlor is produced by INO Broadcasting for itsneworleans.com and Milo Records New Orleans. For everyone here at Milo's Music Parlor, thanks for joining us today. Labor Day signals the unofficial end of summer, but not the end of your outdoor projects. Lowe's helps you do it right and helps you save with Labor Day deals throughout the store. Shop now and get two bags of Stay Green Potty Mix for $12. And keep your lawn looking neat and trim with a Craftsman 2-Cycle 17-inch gas string trimmer, now $20 off at just $119. Whatever's still on your to-do list this Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Offers valid through 828. Soil offer excludes Alaska and Hawaii, U.S. only.